Chapter 24 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2, by John Jay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 24. Mr. Buchanan's Truce. The concession yielded by Mr. Buchanan, instead of tending to conciliate the conspirators, only brought upon him additional demands. It so happened that the principal federal ships of war were absent from the harbors of the Atlantic coast on service in distant waters. But now, as a piece of good fortune amid many untoward occurrences, the steam sloop of war Brooklyn, a new and formidable vessel of twenty-five guns, which had been engaged in making preliminary surveys in the Cherokee Lagoon to test the practicability of one of the proposed interoceanic ship canals, unexpectedly returned to the Norfolk Navy Yard on the 28th of November, less than a week before the meeting of Congress. She had until recently been under the command of Captain Farragut, afterwards famous in the War of the Rebellion, and was, with trifling exceptions, ready for sea. In the cabinet, where the feasibility of collecting the customs revenue at Charleston on shipboard had already been discussed as a possible contingency, and especially where the forcible protection of the public property had also received serious consideration, this sudden appearance of the Brooklyn must have furnished a conclusive reason in favor of both these propositions. Be this as it may, when the President affirmed these duties in his message, the conspirators realized that he held the means of practical enforcement at instantaneous command. With a ship of war ready at Norfolk, with troops at Fortress Monroe, might not a careless emeute at Charleston bring the much-dreaded reinforcements to Moultrie, Sumter, and Pinckney, precipitate a denouement, and prematurely ruin all their well-concocted schemes? There was urgent need to prevent the sailing of the steamer on such an errand. On Saturday, December 8, four of the representatives in Congress from South Carolina requested an interview of President Buchanan, which he granted them in which they rehearsed their well-studied prediction of a collision at Charleston. One of their number has related the substance of their address with graphic frankness. Mr. President, it is our solemn conviction that if you attempt to send a solitary soldier to these forts, the instant the intelligence reaches our people, and we shall take care that it does reach them, for we have sources of information in Washington so that no orders for troops can be issued without our getting information. These forts will be forcibly and immediately stormed. We all assured him that if any attempt was made to transport reinforcements, our people would take these forts, and that we would go home and help them to do it, for it would be suicidal folly for us to allow the forts to be manned and we further said to him that a bloody result would follow the sending of troops to those forts, and that we did not believe that the authorities of South Carolina would do anything prior to the meeting of this convention, and that we hoped and believed that nothing would be done after this body met 
until we had demanded of the general government the recession of these forts. Here was an avowal to the president himself, not only of treason at Charleston, but of conspiracy in the executive departments at Washington. A demand coupled with a menace, a proposal for a ten days' truce, supplemented by a declaration of intention to proceed to extremities after its expiration. Instead of meeting these with a stern rebuke and dismissal, the President cowered and yielded to their demand. The sanctity of the Constitution, the majesty of the law, the power of the nation, the patriotism of the people, all faded from his bewildered vision. His resolute will shrank from his declared purpose to protect the public property and enforce the revenue laws. He saw only the picture of strife and bloodshed with the glib tongues of his persecutors conjured up and failed to detect the theatric purpose for which it was employed. He hastened to assure his visitors that it was his determination not to reinforce the forts in the harbor and thus produce a collision until they had been actually attacked or until he had certain evidence that they were about to be attacked. Though this was only another concession, much like the first in outward semblance, it was nevertheless in its vital essence a fatal hurt to the rapidly shrinking federal authority. The conspiracy had won the choice of position. When the combat should come, it was in the attitude necessary to deal the first blow. The main point secured, there was an exhibition of abundant diplomatic politeness between the parties. The president suggested that, for prudential reasons, it would be best to put in writing what they had said to him verbally. This they readily promised, and on Monday the 10th gave him, duly signed by five of the South Carolina representatives, this important paper. Washington, December 9, 1860. In compliance with our statement to you yesterday, we now express to you our strong convictions that neither the constituted authorities nor any body of the people of the state of South Carolina will either attack or molest the United States forts in the harbor of Charleston previously to the action of the convention. And we hope and believe not until an offer has been made through an accredited representative to negotiate for an amicable arrangement of all matters between the state and federal government, provided that no reinforcements shall be sent into those forts, and their relative military status shall remain as at present. When President Buchanan came to look at the explicit language of this document, he shrank from the definite program to which it committed him. I objected to the word provided, as it might be construed into an agreement on my part which I never would make. They said nothing was further from their intention. They did not so understand it, and I should not so consider it. There followed mutual protestations that the whole transaction was voluntary, informal, and in the nature of a mediation, that neither party possessed any delegated authority or binding power. They were not frank enough to explain to one another that the true object of each was delay, of the president, that time might be gained for reflection, of the members, that time might be gained for the 
unmolested meeting of the convention for passing the ordinance of secession for further organizing public sentiment and pushing forward military preparations at charleston the mask of official propriety worn over this pernicious intrigue the disclaimers the implications and mental reservations of which it was made up all became absurd in view of the result it produced the president indeed explains that it was no pledge or agreement but i acted he naively admits in the same manner as i would have done had i entered into a positive and formal agreement with parties capable of contracting although such an agreement would have been on my part from the nature of my official duties impossible the world knows that i have never sent any reinforcements to the forts in charleston harbor and i have certainly never authorized any change to be made in their relative military status while the conspirators were thus taking effectual steps to bind the future acts of the executive in respect to the forts in charleston harbor and to make sure that the rising insurrection in south carolina should not be crippled or destroyed by any surprise or sudden movement emanating from washington they were not less watchful to counteract and prevent any possible hostile movement against them on the part of major anderson and his handful of officers and troops in fort moultrie undertaken on his own discretion their boast of secret sources of information in washington coupled with subsequent events furnish presumptive evidence that mr floyd secretary of war though yet openly opposing disunion was already in their confidence and counsels and was lending them such active cooperation as might be disguised or perhaps still excused to his own conscience as tending to avert collision and bloodshed shortly before or about the time of the truce we have described secretary floyd sent an officer of the war department to fort moultrie with special verbal instructions to major anderson which were duly communicated and the substance of them reduced to writing and delivered to that officer on the eleventh of december the day following the conclusion of the president's unofficial truce at washington the importance of this document renders it worthy of reproduction in complete form memorandum of verbal instructions to major anderson first artillery commanding at fort moultrie south carolina you are aware of the great anxiety of the secretary of state that a collision of the troops with the people of this state shall be avoided and of his studied determination to pursue a course with reference to the military force and forts in this harbor which shall guard against such a collision he has therefore carefully abstained from increasing the force at this point or taking any measures which might add to the present excited state of the public mind or which would throw any doubt on the confidence he feels that south carolina will not attempt by violence to obtain possession of the public works or interfere with their occupancy but as the counsel and acts of rash and impulsive persons may possibly disappoint these expectations of the government he deems it proper that you shall be prepared with instructions to meet so unhappy a contingency he has therefore directed me verbally 
to give you such instructions. You are carefully to avoid every act which would needlessly tend to provoke aggression, and for that reason you are not, without evident and imminent necessity, to take up any position which could be construed into the assumption of a hostile attitude. But you are to hold possession of the forts in this harbor, and if attacked, you are to defend yourself to the last extremity. The smallness of your force will not permit you, perhaps, to occupy more than one of the three forts, but an attack on or attempt to take possession of either one of them will be regarded as an act of hostility, and you may then put your command into either of them which you may deem most proper to increase its power of resistance. You are also authorized to take similar defensive steps whenever you have tangible evidence of a design to proceed to a hostile act. D.C. Buell, Assistant Adjutant General, Fort Moultrie, South Carolina, December 11, 1860. This is in conformity to my instructions to Major Buell. John B. Floyd, Secretary of War. Upon mere superficial inspection, these instructions disclosed only the then-dominant anxiety of the administration to prevent collision. But if we remember that they were sent to Major Anderson without the President's knowledge and without the knowledge of General Scott, and especially if we keep in sight the state of public sentiment of both Charleston and Washington and the paramount official influences which had taken definite shape in the President's truce, we can easily read between the lines that they were most artfully contrived to lull suspicion while effectually restraining Major Anderson from any act or movement which might check or control the insurrectionary preparations. He must do nothing to provoke aggression. He must take no hostile attitude without evident and imminent necessity. He must not move his troops into Fort Sumter unless it were attempted to attack or take possession of one of the forts of such a design were tangibly manifested. Practically, when the attempt to seize the vacant forts might come, it would be too late to prevent it, and certainly too late to move his own force into either of them. Practically, too, any serious design of that nature would never be permitted to come to his knowledge. Supplement these literal negations and restrictions by the unrecorded verbal explanations and comments said to have been made by Major Buell by his disapproval of the meager defensive preparations which had been made, such as his declaration that a few loopholes would have a tendency to irritate the people. And we can readily imagine how a faithful officer, whose reiterated calls for help had been refused, felt that under such instructions, such surroundings, and such neglect, his hands were tied, and that he and his little command were a foredoomed sacrifice. End of chapter 24 Recorded by Sheila Blunt.